highly sustainable building will always be in high demand with tenants, and a building that's in high demand with tenants will always be valuable to an investor. Decarbonisation is essential for the environment and for protecting the future value of assets. So what's the best way to decarbonise? And what are the risks if we don't? The impact of retrofit is about energy efficiency, it is about assets, but it's also about um, health, happiness, <laughs> and all the other dimensions of that. I'm Andrew Belt, and a warm welcome to the Patcast, the podcast from Patrizia, a leading partner in global real assets. Every investor wants to know that the capital they invest today will at least have the same value tomorrow. But in a volatile market characterised by higher inflation and interest rates, the role of asset managers to preserve value has never been more important. A big part of preserving value is by making buildings sustainable, future-proofing them from any brown discount erosion in value. And it's this net zero approach to protecting value that we will discuss further with the expert insights of Kate Crawford, Technical Director of Sustainable Construction and Procurement Specialists, KLH Sustainability, and Mattia Erlshut, Patrizia Head of Sustainability and Impact Investing. In this episode, we'll find out what factors are driving us towards decarbonisation, we'll hear examples of successful decarbonisation projects, and we'll discuss the benefits of retrofitting versus demolition. So let's kick off with the million dollar question. How do decarbonisation investments protect, or even increase, the future value of an asset? So Andrew, this is about the rising threat of stranding risk. So those properties unable to comply with future regulations or meet market expectations, they will become stranded. A couple of factors are at play here. Governments, they're adopting legally binding net zero carbon targets. So new regulations and taxes uh, will be introduced to deliver decarbonization. Another aspect is regulators, multinational regulators and standard bodies are introducing new regulations to drive change. Investors like ourselves, our clients, they are screening for climate risks and will restrict investments to those assets that are able to be decarbonized. But others are lenders. Uh, Lenders are limiting the pool of buildings they are willing to finance based on the exposure to climate risks. And finally, and very importantly, the tenants, the occupiers of the buildings, they are increasingly focused on occupying sustainable buildings. So these are the reasons why deorganization is very relevant. I would agree with all of that. I think we tend to see that in the way clients are approaching us now, which is this increased concern about embodied carbon that just didn't have a place on the agenda five 10 years ago. And I think they're seeing regulation coming over the horizon. There were already voluntary targets for trying to minimize um, embodied carbon. That's the, the carbon you invest when you build something new or the carbon in the materials you might use to retrofit or replace items in a building. And lots of people want to know how the balance sheet for that now, which wasn't the case before. Um, We also get a lot of clients um, not directly asking about decarbonisation, but definitely asking about electrification. That electrification move has a massive decarbonisation impact because it's not just about switching from gas to electricity. It's about switching to a technology that can give you more heat for less input energy. So that is another thing that's heading our way as we give advice to clients. I think Because we work with a lot of built environment clients, 
the other push is that decarbonisation isn't just about reducing energy or reducing carbon. Many, many buildings built in the 70s, 80s and 90s are proving to be not fit for purpose now in terms of comfort, in terms of the space and the glare or the lack of natural light, or they're noisy, or they are using fresh air that's directly from outside and in urban areas that's polluted. So there are people coming because they want a healthy, comfortable, productive building, and they're going to fix it anyway. And when they do that, they want it to be energy efficient at the end of the day too. And what evidence is there to to support this, you know, on top of a lot of the anecdotal evidence you've provided there and and, and what occupiers and landlords are, are wanting from developments with their buildings. So what would you say in terms of providing maybe a few examples? Andrew, when talking about evidence, I think maybe that is actually the million dollar question. If, you know, the evidence is piling up, it would be far easier and not disputed. There's definitely a huge risk of inaction, I would say. So if we wouldn't act, I feel the assets we managed are definitely more exposed to damage from extreme weather and climate events. We already see it happening. What you will find is there's limited availability of insurance cover, definitely. But what we also see, we witness already, and it will only happen more, is that valuations will be under downward pressure but to reflect the costs of unaddressed climate risks. And that's what we then refer to, or the industry refers to as the brown discount. I also believe that a rising backlog of capital expenditure to address climate risks is a risk in itself. Investors will be penalized for that. Higher non-recoverable costs for more expensive fossil fuel energy consumption and carbon taxes, penalties, we see it coming. Again, a risk of inaction if you don't deal with it today. Lower investor demand for stranded assets. Can we back that up? For sure, we see definitely less liquidity for assets that are brought to the market and you would consider to be brown. And lenders, we already see increasing requests from lenders. They're unwilling to finance stranded assets. They will always raise questions how we have budgeted for CapEx over the lifetime of the specific asset before they're willing to lend to it. So limited availability of debt and finance at a higher cost is another risk of inaction. And finally, coming back to the tenant again, uh, lower tenant demand for these stranded assets. So expect longer void periods, uh, lower rents, uh, higher CapEx costs. So all of these are risks of inaction. On the policy front, that there are already cases making headlines. I mentioned embodied carbon. There was a headline-grabbing article last year where a, a huge store on Oxford Street in London was slated for demolition and the local planning authority intervened and prevented the demolition because they saw it as a huge waste of carbon, a squandering of material and resources. Regulation to block the demolition and incentivize um, retrofit and refurbishment is also in a lot of local planning guidance in the UK. So that that is being built in and developers who are our clients and asset owners who are our clients are now confronting this. It's very real. We also have some clients in Ireland and Ireland unlike the UK, doesn't have any building regulation around the risk of overheating. Even though there's no regulation, a house builder there who'd built brand new, high-quality, high-end apartments is being sued by 
the inhabitants because they're so uncomfortable. And those those apartments were built compliant with current regulation. So there's evidence that if we're not taking account of these things in the buildings we're building and the buildings we have, there is a risk that there'll be backlash and there'll be people complaining. I think to Matteo's point about insurance, there's massive withdrawal of private insurance in Florida, in California. Those are because of where housing has been built. And if the insurance industry is doing that, and this is a highly data-driven sector, then everyone should be extremely nervous. The impact of regulation directly, I it's coming, I've made that point, but I also feel quite strongly that building regulation and the regulation of planning and land use are really far from protecting us from systemic risk of a changing climate at the moment. So the emphasis on insurers moving quickly is really important to understand value. You can you can have an asset that's compliant for a long time. It doesn't mean your asset will have value in the long term. If you look at the EU uh, when it comes to, G- to their GHG reduction target, so EU wants to is targeting a fifty five percent reduction, right, in greenhouse gas emissions. Now we know there is then a very important role for buildings to play as uh, the build environment is responsible for, say, 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. The staggering figure to me is that, you know, around 90% of the 210 million buildings we have in the EU, they are expected to be still standing, which is something which is very good. But the renovation of these buildings is essential and Therefore, we need this renovation wave. But at the current rate, we're only renovating, say, 1% a year. So that's definitely not enough. So there's actually a backlog building up in terms of renovation. And knowing that 35% of the buildings of uh, in the EU are older than 50 years and almost 75% of the building stock is considered to be today energy inefficient, there's a huge wave of renovation still to come. You know, if you look at the numbers of capex that is then expected to be needed, current assumption is that more than 7 trillion euros would be needed to meet energy efficiency standards. So that's a a lot of money. And that's why we also refer to that as a decarbonisation funding gap. A lot to be done still. So, So that leads on to the next question where asset management becomes very important. So how deep, how do you go about you know, decarbonizing buildings? From a portfolio perspective, I think knowing what you have, making sure you have energy data, benchmarking the performance, not just on the EPC rating, but on the real data and real consumption. And looking back, disaggregating and benchmarking the previous investments, you know, the historic investments and the current investments that will be needed to transform them. We have many built environment, asset managers and portfolio owners who just don't have that starting point. And their ability to make any granular decisions or hierarchy about where to start, what to do and when to do it is very constrained by that lack of information. So from a non-technical point of view, it's the data first that I would always want to see. Yeah, I would very much agree to that. What we do within Patricia is definitely follow a structured approach in the sense uh, we follow the energy hierarchy in delivering the net zero carbon strategy. And 
screening for stranding risk is the more, well, the first and important uh, step. So stranding risk, trying to identify that using what we refer to as the, the CREM tooling. So the carbon risk real estate monitor is an important methodology, plotting the carbon reduction pathway for the asset against required pathways or against other assets we're managing. So to compare and see what the relative performance is as well. We do also definitely review the EPCs because they are also in legislation in a very important measure whether an asset is efficient, yes or no, whether we're still allowed to lease it out. So EPCs, definitely important. And of course, we measure the physical risk of the assets. That's really the, the screening, so to say. Next step, asset level analysis. So definitely prioritizing. If we're not talking about one asset, we're talking about a huge portfolio of billions. So we have to prioritize those properties that are stranded earlier than later or those that are most exposed to regulation. Explore really all feasibility investments. So everything that's feasible, viable, of course, we will crack on right away. We have to model investments in terms of the costs and what they will deliver in terms of decarbonization and plan for the investments. That's very important. So in our budgeting process, we should not only identify the issues, but well plan for them, even though it will only happen in five years' time, at least it's then already budgeted for. And the energy efficiency is then prioritized. So reducing energy demand and improving the energy efficiency is key. Electrifying the buildings, if it's not possible today, then plan for removing fossil fuels uh, from the building and really establish to what extent you're able to upgrade in a viable way and introducing renewable energy, of course, on-site, wherever possible, or procure energy as an alternative and then targeting high-quality green energy. And then we haven't touched yet on embodied carbon, but that's, of course, comes into play as well. We have to weigh through life cycle analysis, whatever we add in embodied carbon is balanced by the saving we will be making during the life in operational carbon. So balancing the two is is key in that process as well. Just listening to Mathieu reminds me that I think we need this level of sophistication in the conversation between engineers and the sources of finance, because we have had for many years this mantra of fabric first in retrofit, which means dealing with the envelope of the, of the building, dealing with whether it's insulated or not, where it leaks, where it lets light in or doesn't, where it has shade. But those interventions are often the most expensive interventions. They they make the biggest difference because that envelope is the element that drives the energy consumption and the heat loss. But there are a lot of leaders in retrofit now, commentators are now suggesting fabric second to look at the overall design, how the building works as a whole. And as Mathieu said, plan for the life of that asset, the moment when you're going to upgrade the fabric when it makes sense to upgrade the fabric when it the cost benefit stacks up and and then in terms of examples of when this approach has yielded a win-win or even win-win-win outcome with increased returns for investors happy occupiers and a tangible improvement for the planet do you have a few examples you can run through yeah and so we there's a project that we worked on in london this was new homes but they were built 
with a specification of zero energy and zero waste. There were no skips, you know, the messy containers you have on site when you're um, normally doing any kind of construction project. There was reuse of materials, reuse of bricks from small existing structures that had been there. The new materials were, were bio-based as far as possible, so a very low carbon footprint. And at the end of the construction stage, the developer even had to have a kind of direct conversation with mortgage lenders because the houses were unusual and the mortgage lending market wasn't ready to put that on the table. But the houses were sold at a premium that even the developer didn't expect because there was a demand as it happens in that part of London for homes that have that kind of mission, that kind of environmental goal. But I think a lot of the lesson learning from that project, and this is true for lots of construction projects, including refurbishment and retrofit, is that unless the supply chain has been engaged early, unless the supply chain understands the purpose of the build or the the transformation, costs are higher. So this idea of fabric always being more expensive, there are some obvious reasons why an intervention like that is more expensive. You have to put scaffolding up. Maybe people have to leave the building. There's there's a huge surface area to cover. There's lots of reasons why it drivers for that cost. But there are also drivers which are the market doesn't do it regularly. Or there's a lot of risk aversion because of the way the insurance works or the lending works. So there are other things driving the cost that might not be anything to do with the practicality of doing the work. And so lots of the projects that I previously worked on on larger scale retrofit, the only way it works when you're looking at a whole portfolio of buildings is that you work really closely with contractors. You make it really clear from the beginning the kind of quality that you're expecting so that it's not a surprise and that it doesn't cost more to deliver something excellent that makes a difference. And I worked on a, a pilot project for housing retrofit in Manchester on houses that had direct electric heating, which is the most expensive way to heat your home. And the houses were very poorly insulated. They hadn't been really uh, rehabilitated since they'd been built. And when we went back after the, the simple measures, really, the lofts, the walls, the windows, the leaks and the air tightness all fixed, we were talking to families who lived there afterwards. And one of the parents said, it's completely transformed what happens after school because the children play. And before they were just too cold, they would sit on the sofa and be under a blanket. And now they actually play in the room. And then you realize the impact of retrofit is about energy efficiency. It is about assets, but it's also about um, health, happiness, <laughs> and all the other dimensions of that. I would like to add two examples, and they are quite maybe the opposite from each other. Both are offices. The first example is what we refer to as the Louise in Brussels, really a landmark building, very old, maybe not that old, but the year of construction was 1963. And we have redeveloped the office tower today. I think before or in the past, a building like this would be knocked down, really. A new build, far easier to do. We didn't want to do that, obviously. So we looked into the possibilities to really redevelop it and maintain as much as we could from the existing building. What we found, it was possible. 
we have now uh, developed a premium excellent office so highest standard in that sense also well platinum so coming back to what kate was saying about the tenant the occupiers well platinum will definitely serve the tenants in the building and the people in the building what we have achieved here if you compare the new setup the newly redeveloped building it will be using 70 percent less energy than the old building uh, was doing so in that sense you can compare it to a brand new building fully newly developed but this is again a redevelopment and through the process of redevelopment we have the embodied carbon has been massively reduced if you compare it to a new build so we have been able to create a brand new building but only allowing for embodied carbon of one third of a newly developed building so you need much less embodied carbon to create a similar product than built from scratch and that's key because that's a massive amount i believe in this case we have saved over 10,000 tons of carbon by redeveloping rather than knocking down a new build the opposite is really an example we have in our Hanover fund an office from the 90s so not that old but a already in need of redevelopment and refurbishment. So the office, a fairly small office in St. Albans, but through the redevelopment, we are able to bring it from an EPCD to an EPCA. And why is this a very relevant one? Because I suspect, you know, there are thousands of offices like this, not just in the UK, all across Europe. And trying to improve, you know, not just the landmark buildings, but definitely also these middle-of-the-road offices, you know, that's where the challenge really is to do this at scale. Here again, a huge carbon footprint reduction has been achieved. We're also reusing previous tenants' furniture and, and fit-out items, so emphasizing really that commitment to, to a circular economy as well. And we've been able to decommission the gas-fired heating system and adopted measures to align with the energy hierarchy again. So significant progress made at such an asset level as well. As a result, we're able to secure government and blue chip tenants, because let's not forget that the tenants are setting standards as well. It's not just us as investors or lenders, but tenants have set themselves targets of becoming net zero by say 2030. Now they won't get there, if they don't occupy an office that is delivering on that as well. So meeting these high standards allows us to attract better tenants. So underscoring the appeal and uh, success of such a revitalized space. Where are we in terms of A, the industry's understanding of what is required to decarbonize the built environment and B, our implementation of strategies which will help us towards net zero. And Kate, I wondered if you could provide insights from your many touch points across the sector. Mattia, the view from Patrizia. Yeah, I mean, I think the understanding of operational energy efficiency has totally landed. 20 years ago, sometimes the case was hard to make and the regulatory environment in the last 20 years has changed dramatically. I, that gives me some comfort. We have rating systems, we have wider concerns about energy security and price volatility, and that has really landed. And operational energy tracks to operational carbon pretty 
well. So you can land the decarbonisation argument around your building's operation. That's, you know, we're getting there with that. And moving from boilers to heat pumps, that step has such a massive carbon impact that in many buildings, it's just a, a no brainer once the other equipment lived its service life. I would say embodied carbon is still with the pioneers at the moment in terms of accounting for it and having a really robust inventory of materials. And and I also think lower carbon building materials, including cement alternatives, including bio-based materials, that is also still with the pioneers. And there are all sorts of challenges there with insurance, with warranties, with being compliant for product on the market. So that's got a long way to go. I also, I'm a building services engineer by background. And so all of the HVAC, the heating, ventilation and AC equipment, one of the reasons I chose that path was because I thought that's where the operational energy reductions were going to be happening the fastest, which was true. But now that supply chain, the HVAC supply chain is really, really far away from being able to account for its embodied carbon. Same for batteries, same for PVs. It's very, very, very hard to get environmental product declarations for many of those supply chains and that equipment. From huge manufacturers, there's no excuse. You know, they're just not not there yet. I think as an industry, we have definitely advanced in terms of knowledge. If you look at, you know, have we delivered already? No, we haven't delivered yet. But it's not that easy to move the whole industry in the sense of all assets from where they have been to net zero, where we want to get to. And we should definitely, you know, increase pace in trying to get there. I guess the increased knowledge will definitely help us. It will come at a price. I don't think it's already priced in into each and every asset across the industry. What we, I I do see industry associations like INREF or ULI definitely bringing players together trying to agree on the way forward. I think that's definitely helpful. The industry sometimes feels like, oh, there are too many standards already. And then as a solution, they try to think of even a new standard. So adding another standard, because that would be solving all of the problems. I don't think we should be spending too much time on that. There's enough you know, standards already. I would be happy to just focus on a couple of them and try to improve them rather than trying to spend time and money on creating new standards. I think we pretty well know what we have to do. So the push is definitely there. And if I look within Patricia, I feel we have done a lot already, also from a strategic point of view, by committing to a net zero carbon strategy. We want to get there by 2040. That strategy that we set as Patricia is now filtering down to the funds. So wherever we have discretion over the fund, we have already, for most of these funds, implementing a similar strategy that will get us to net zero by 2040. It's not just about strategy, for sure. So tooling, as I referred to before, with the ESG toolkit we introduced, but also we introduced a asset decarbonization manual helping our asset managers and fund managers how to look at the building and how to decarbonizing it over time. And then the ESG data gathering, we have so massively improved on that as well, but it's quite an effort to gather data, uh, ESG data over 1,500 real estate assets we manage. But 
each and every year we get a or we are able to get a more and more data and it's proving to pay off to us as well so all in all i think yes definitely we have advanced as an industry as an organization we are definitely advancing and our assets are improving as well it might be worth saying just finishing by just saying that there are reasons for optimism but there's also reasons to act we are doing something compared to 20 years ago it's not enough but i think we need to bring people with us on this journey it can be done we have really clever people we have really motivated people let's do it thanks to our guests kate and mattia and thanks to you for listening i'm andrew belt and you've been listening to the podcast from patrizia you can subscribe to the show on apple podcasts and spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and don't forget to head over to our website patrizia.ag to find out more This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.